Ephesians 6, if you'd like to be turning in your Bibles, please, on this beautiful morning. Isn't that a stunning morning? In case you haven't looked out of the window, it is a lovely morning. Well, the question this morning is, why is church so hard? Why is church so hard? And I noticed that the uh, organisers have even tried to replicate a sort of church feel by having an empty front row, which I thought was very... very (laughs) Sorry, Ben, you're on it, I know, but... um, Have you ever wondered why Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, the bit about um, sometimes called spiritual warfare, is there? Kind of tacked on to the end of Ephesians. Um, did Paul have a coffee break and he got back and as he was, as the you know, caffeine was getting into his brain, he, he suddenly thought to himself, do you know what, I don't think I've ever written anything on strategic level spiritual warfare. Um, maybe this is the moment. I'm wondering how to wind the letter up. Why don't I say something about that? Or maybe with great uh, foresight, he thinks to himself, now, wouldn't this be great material for a best-selling series of novels about how the lives of Christians are constantly being messed up by demons poking their supernatural fingers into them? Well, no. Um, on the contrary, this is, in fact, the climax of the letter, Uh, Max Turner writes in his commentary in the New Bible Commentary, and if you haven't ever really started getting commentaries on the Bible, let me recommend that you, in fact, I think the best way to get it is to buy the CD-ROM off IVP. Go onto their website and you can get the entire collection of the Tyndale Commentaries, old and new, and a whole series of their dictionaries, and they're all searchable, um, and uh, it's it's a brilliant resource. Uh, And in the one volume New Bible Commentary, Max Turner writes, does the commentary on Ephesians, and he comments on this chapter, a central chapter of, or central part of chapter 6 as follows. He says, chapter 6, 10 to 20, must be read in the light of the whole of Ephesians as a call to live out the gospel of cosmic reconciliation. Not as an appendix for those with a special interest in demons and spiritual warfare. I think it's a very helpful comment. So let's look at these verses, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, To stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the the mystery, the revelation of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would indeed open our eyes to see the truth of these verses and not only to understand, but to be enabled in the rest of our days to put these things into practice and to know the blessedness that the Lord Jesus spoke of that comes to those who not only hear but put into practice what they hear. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So why is church so hard along the way? Well, remember, God has a plan to unite everything in the universe under Christ's rule. And the purpose of the local church is to be a working model of that future. A brand new community, united by the grace of God, planned before time began, revealed in Christ, where the deepest divisions known to mankind are broken down. And unity in diversity, with maturity and purity, are brought into a supernatural harmony through the powerful working of God's Holy Spirit. And this issue's in a call to walk in a different way from the world around us. To walk a path of humility and gentleness, patiently bearing with one another in love, thinking differently, walking in love, light, and wisdom, copying Christ in sacrificial love for one another, filled by the Spirit with the fullness of God in Christ, so that our relationships in marriage, in the family, in the workplace, have constant reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the striking things in the passage that we've skipped over from 5.22 to 6.9, which is the application of, of walking wise in the Spirit's power, is that every single relationship or role, if you like, relates to Christ and is related to Christ. So wives submit, verse 522, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's this constant reference to Christ. So if you're a, if you're a wife, you're thinking of Christ. If you're a husband, you're thinking of Christ. If you're a child, you should be thinking of Christ, obeying your parents in the Lord. If you're a, a father, you should be thinking of Christ, instructing your children and training them in the instruction of the Lord. What would the Lord Jesus teach? What do they need to know from him? 
slaves, or we might, I think, legitimately translate that into employees. Like slaves of Christ. In other words, thinking of Christ, serving wholeheartedly, 6-7, as if you were serving the Lord. Which Lord? The Lord Jesus, of course. So you go back to work tomorrow, who are you working for? Is it just the bank or the school or whoever it might be? Well, yes, it is, but it's much more than that. Serve wholeheartedly, 6-7. As if you were serving the Lord Jesus. So think about that as you drive in or get the bus in or walk into work tomorrow. Now, why am I going to this place of work? What am I supposed to be doing when I get there? I am going to work for the Lord Jesus today. I tell you, that changes it, doesn't it? So easy to lose sight of that. And if you happen to be a boss, maybe some of you are bosses, I don't know. Well, remember, you have a boss too. And who's your boss? The Lord Jesus. So bear that in mind as you deal with people in your firm or your company. Everything is related to the Lord Jesus. And what does the devil think of that? He loathes it with a deep loathing. He catches a whiff of the stench of the lake of sulfurous fire, which is his own future, when he is written out of the script. And he will do all in his power to wreck the model of the church so that it doesn't work. It's just broken. He's the one, remember, chapter 2, verse 2, who is constantly fomenting disobedience to God among the unbelieving world. He's delighted. He's at work in those who are disobedient. Striking phrase, isn't it, in chapter 2, verse 2. He's working away in the unbelieving world, saying, you know what God wants? Do the opposite. Chapter 4, verse 27. He's constantly on the lookout for a way to destroy the harmony of the local church. Great way to do it is to stir up anger between Christians. Someone who's really annoyed you, really offended you in the church. Really out of line. What they said was totally out of order. What they did was quite wrong. So how do you feel about it? Well, you feel righteously angry, don't you? I mean, you... And it may have been a long time ago, but you can still feel that anger when you stop to reflect on that situation or that person. And the devil's saying, great, go on, think about it, reflect on it. Let that anger rise up within you. And as you go into church and you see them, just allow that feeling of anger to, there's that person. Deep breathing. Star Wars. And the Paul, the apostle, says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. 4.26. And do not give the devil a foothold. He's running at you like a cliff face, trying to get a foothold on your life. And if you let anger jut out, he'll climb on it. He'll be up all over you. Don't give him a foothold. So can you hear the air raid siren? 
The whine of mortars, the crump of explosions, the crackle of gunfire. Can you hear it? You see, spiritually speaking, that's what's going on in the life of the church and the life of the Christian. And that's why Paul issues this final call to be strong in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and stand your ground. Paul calls on the church to guard their precious unity, one at such great cost to our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot take peace and unity in the church for granted. Now, we need to, I suggest, do three things that the Apostle Paul draws out. We need to cop on, to kit out, and to call out. Forgive the high literary standards of the morning. So number one, cop on. There's a war on, verses 10 to 12. Why is church so hard? Answer, it's a war zone. Now, as we saw earlier in the weekend, many Christians in Ephesus had been involved in the occult. It was a great occult center of that part of the world. Do you remember how they, they had to bring, when they saw the power of the name of Jesus when that spirit overcame those seven sons of Sceva and declared that he didn't know them. He, he knew Paul, he knew the name of Jesus, but he didn't know them, so he beat them up. And then some of the professing Christians in the church realized they had to get rid of all their paraphernalia, all their occult stuff, and all their scrolls, their famous Ephesian scrolls with their kind of uh, curses and blessings on them they had to get rid of those and there was that huge bonfire of that millions of pounds worth of stuff and we're realizing that you're in a, a spiritual war zone it is a bit scary initially isn't it so that phrase um, at the end of verse 12 we're struggling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. A kind of Star Wars for real. That can make us get a bit worried. But wait a minute. What was Paul's opening gambit back in chapter 1 verse 3? What did he say about... Our God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we to praise him and to bless his name? Because he has blessed us where? In the heavenly realms. With every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's the same place. It's the heavenly realms. Okay, they may, there may be spiritual forces of evil around in the heavenly realms. But we have been blessed in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We have Nothing to fear if we're connected with Christ in union solidarity. No, the heavenly realms is not a place of fear for the Christian. It's a place of blessing. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Because of our solidarity with him, that is because we trust in him. We were spiritually dead. We know that that's part of our past history. But what did God do? Chapter 2, verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ where? Chapter 2, verse 6. In the heavenly realms. In Christ Jesus. 
So we are seated, spiritually speaking, not in this room. Yes, we are physically in this room, but spiritually, if we're Christians, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms where we have nothing to fear because we're in Christ, protected by him, as it were. So the fact that our struggle is 612 against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms needn't scare us at all. But it should sober us up. For when you are at war, that changes everything. Now, I'm of that generation whose parents were brought up in the Second World or lived through the Second World War. My parents actually got married, um, I think, just after the Blitz. But that's uh, an exciting time of life. Um, And it's very interesting. I, I talk occasionally with people like myself, whose parents lived through the Second World War, um, which was the last time that, that the UK, at least, was really in a war that affected people living in this country directly. And it affects their whole life. I mean, you're, everything about your daily life is totally affected by the war that is going on, even down to little details of Blackouts, you know, you have to make sure all the curtains are fully drawn, that there's not a chink of light getting out of the curtains uh, after dark. Or else the the wardens will be along and banging on your door saying, turn that light off, draw those curtains, pull that blind, whatever it is. It affects everything. Uh, Your food supply, uh, rationing, all that kind of thing. Every resource is tapped. You're given choices in life that are very limited. So my mother leaves school as a an 18-year-old, a, war, a year into the war, and university is out. She'd been hoping to go to study languages at university. Not an option. Thank you, Adolf. Um, her choices were, if I remember rightly, to, jo- to, to be called up to join the, the women's uh, forces or to work on the land as a land girl. Uh, or there was, one final, there was a third option, which was to go to Bible college, would you believe, uh, which she took. Um, But what a narrowing of life. Everything is affected by it. Normal civilian life disappears. It only continues to the extent it contributes to the war effort. Life is never the same again for as long as the war continues. What is our war like? Well, three things to note about the war that is on. The first thing to note is that it is primarily defensive as far as we're concerned. And I think this is really important because so often, we actually sang, I was thinking as we sang earlier, uh, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. There was a, there was a verse or two where I thought, hmm, yeah, that's the traditional way of understanding it, but I'm not sure that's fully in line with uh, Ephesians 6. In other words, these kind of Songs that talk about marching in and claiming the ground or charging against the foe was the line that, that hit me. Did you spot that one that we sang? You know, it's, it's great for the movies. It's a kind of Hollywood spin on spiritual warfare. But actually, if you look at the text, there's no charging out to attack the foe. On the contrary, what are we told to do? Four times? Look at it, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's scheme. 
Verse 13. Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And just to underline the point, and after you have done everything, to do what? To charge out? No, to stand. Verse 14, concluding. Stand firm then. Stand firm. Hold your ground. So we're like troops being asked to hold a hill against enemy attack. A hill that has already been won against the enemy. All we're doing is being told to to hold it. The victory has already been won. What have we been told at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 19 following? About the incomparably great power of God. The power that is is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, where? In the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. Now the victory has been won in Christ. He has defeated the devil decisively. We don't have to go and defeat the devil. He's already been defeated at the cross. He's been disarmed, as Colossians puts it. All he's got is a mobile propaganda wagon that he uses to go about the country uh, broadcasting lies from. Jesus the Messiah has come and he's won the victory. He asks us to hold the ground he's won for us. It's a primarily defensive war, our spiritual conflict. That's the first thing to note. The second thing is it's, it's beyond our capacity to do this. In our own strength, we cannot even hold the ground that Christ has won, which is why in chapter 6, verse 10, we're told to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the command to be strong is not a kind of encouragement to positive thinking. Come on, you know, think some positive thoughts. Uh, Find the strength within you. You've got it. No, it's not a call to that. It's a passive command. It's be strengthened, literally. Be strengthened in the Lord. In other words, find your strength from the Lord himself and his mighty power. Do you remember that prayer in chapter 3, verse 16? I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You need to find that strengthening with power through the spirit so that Christ is resident in your hearts in a He's already resident by the Spirit, but so that almost there's a a deeper awareness of his residence with you. So that you're constantly looking to him for the strength that you need. Because it is beyond our capacity to hold the ground. But we can do it with his strength and enabling. Third thing to note in the war, it's primarily defensive, it's beyond our capacity. Third thing, we have a cunning and ruthless enemy. Know your enemy, first rule of war, isn't it? 
Verse 11 of chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God so that you, may, you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil and his schemes. We have a wily enemy. Paul is not denying the elements of the world and our own sinful desires are against us. But the Christian life as a whole is a a profound spiritual warfare of cosmic proportions in which the ultimate opposition to the advance of the gospel and the moral integrity of God's people springs from evil supernatural powers under the control of the devil. And that is the reality. The devil, remember, 1 Peter describes as prowling around looking for people to gobble up. And we're told to resist him, to stand firm. Now today, many people in our culture don't believe the devil exists, do they? You went in and did a little survey of your colleagues at work tomorrow. So just trying to find out whether you believe the devil exists or not. Uh, Yes or no. Uh, I'd be very surprised if there was a majority in favor of the existence of a personal being called the devil. Wouldn't you? Uh, Most people that you know and work with uh, wouldn't believe that there's such a thing as the devil let alone such a person as the devil. And of course, the devil, I think in the UK, the figure, the most recent figure I, I saw was, was about 25% of people believed in the devil. So three quarters don't. And if they were with us this morning, they'd be sitting there shaking their heads saying, this is just nonsense. What are they talking about? Why are they wasting their time on worrying about someone who doesn't exist? Um, and of course, that's one of the devil's best lies, isn't it? Uh, I don't exist. It's back to the invisibility cloak again. Uh, You think you see me? No, I'm not here. Um, I mean, there's other great lies to go, uh, and scare people. And so the other extreme is is to live in fear and trepidation of the devil, if you're a Christian, that is. As if he's got the upper hand, or any moment now he could get you. Uh, Yes, there's truth. He's prowling around looking to get you. But in Christ, he's not going to get you. You don't need to be afraid. But he's cunning, and he's deceitful. And he will sometimes appear as an angel of light to entice us. At other times, he will do the boo-hoo approach. But a lot of the time, he just quietly gets on reinforcing the idea that maybe he's not very powerful if he's there, um, or maybe Christ isn't very powerful, and you better watch out or he'll get you. He's cunning and ruthless. Watch out for him. The object of his aim is to divide the church, to wreck the model that God has put on earth, which constantly reminds him that his, the devil's end, is coming. So, cop on. There's a war on. And if there truly is a war on, and we are called by God to called up by God to play our part in the war effort, then what are we supposed to do? We present ourselves. I've been called up, Lord. Here I am. Now what? Well, secondly, kit out with the full gear of the gospel. You've arrived at the recruiting station as a Christian, so to speak, and here's the kit. 
If you want to take something seriously, you get the kit, don't you? Even if it's just something as modest as, as Ben and Claire doing their running, you know, you have to get proper running shoes, don't you? And you, you want to get proper running shoes, not just old trainers or runners that, that um, you had from school or something. No, you want to get a decent pair because you're, you're taking this seriously. You're, you know, if you're playing in a band, you want to get not that old guitar that your granny gave you for your 13th birthday. Uh, you want to get a decent one. You know, you, you'll research what the good makes are. You'll go and talk to Alan afterwards and find out, you know, what, what, what are you playing, Alan? And, and, and you'll... I mean, you'll want to get a bargain, I know, like me, but uh, you'll still want to get a good make, a good model, because uh, you want to take this seriously. Or if you play golf, have you noticed how golfers go bananas on kit? Um, I walk the dog most mornings just near the Royal Mid-Surrey Golf Course, and uh, I love looking the, at the cars in the car park as I go past, and the boots opening, and all the kit coming out of the boot uh, makes me smile inwardly. I keep a straight face outwardly, but um, I'm smiling inwardly. Or gardening. I don't know, you're not into gardening, are you? Uh, forget that one. But whatever it is you're into, you want to get the kit if you're going to take it seriously. Well, how much more if we're Christians who are taking seriously the fact that we're in a spiritual battle, how much more is it important that we get the kit? And if you're going into battle in time of war, you must wear a helmet. It's not optional. You must wear army boots, flak jacket, camouflage, gun. You've got to have a proper radio fitted onto you for communications. How much more then in the spiritual battle is it important that we kit out with the full gear of the gospel? We need to have a clear grasp of the gospel and its implications if we are to hold our ground in the battle. If we're to resist the enemy's aim to divide the church and destroy God's working model. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Six pieces of kit. First, the belt or bodice of truth, verse 14. Probably the leather apron worn under the rest of the armour. Remember, where is Paul? He's in chains. He's probably chained to a Roman soldier. He's probably looking at his kit and thinking, yeah, I like it. Um, and using it as a, a vivid illustration, and of course those he's, he's writing to, they, they all, they'd all know what a Roman soldier was, was kitted out in. They were used to soldiers on the streets. And this is probably the, the foundation garment worn under the rest of the armour. might be a belt, but that may be slightly anachronistic. Uh, the, the, that's why I said the bodice, possibly, if that's the right word. Correct me later. Um, of truth. What is the truth? Well, there seems to be a double aspect of truth in Ephesians. There's the truth of the gospel. So, for example, chapter 1, verse 13, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So there's the message of the gospel, which is the truth, but there is also a way of life which goes with it. So by the time you get to chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, you're to walk as children of the light, 
For the fruit of the light, verse 9, consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So it's the truth of the gospel worked out in a life of truthfulness, if you like. Then there's the flak jacket of righteousness, second piece of kit, verse 14. Again, a double aspect of righteousness through the letter. There's the righteousness of Christ credited to us. That's at the heart of the gospel, as we saw in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This gift of God, not specifically alluded to as righteousness in this case, but we know from Paul's other writings that that's what he has in mind. And then there's the fruit of the light, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 9, that consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So again, it's this double aspect, a grasp of the righteousness that is ours by faith, the gift of righteousness, and the ethical righteousness that needs to flow from that. I mean, some commentators try and uh, say it's either one or the other. Again, uh, I think it's probably alluding to both. If we're going to preserve the unity and the purity of the church, we need to have pure doctrine and pure behavior. We need to have the truth of right understanding and the truthfulness of right living. The truth of righteousness credited and the truth of righteousness lived out by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. These are going to keep the church united. This is how we kit out for the battle. So the undergarment of truth, the flak jacket of righteousness, and then thirdly, gospel boots, verse 15. Literally fitting your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. But what is this readiness? Again, I think there's probably a double aspect Good boots make us stable. I mean, if you decide, I mean, I can say this nowadays, nowadays to girls as, as well as blokes, if you decide to take up rugby, for example, girls, they don't laugh at me. I, we live in Richmond, which is one of the, one of the best girls' rugby teams in, in England, and uh, I see them playing occasionally on the local park. Uh, so I know girls play rugby. They don't tell me they don't. Um, You need good boots in that muddy environment. Extra long studs on your boots, right? Trying to play in runners or trainers on muddy ground, especially if you're in the scrum, that just isn't going to work when push comes to shove. You've got to be ready to stand your ground. To forgive one another just as Christ forgave us. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Gospel boots that will give us stability. But I think there's also another aspect too, because you don't want boots that are so heavy that, okay, they may get right down into the mud so that when you're in the scrum you don't move an inch. But then as the play goes off to the other side of the field, you're left there stuck in the mud. Now, you don't want boots that are too heavy. You want boots that enable you to move as well. There's always a... A trade-off, isn't there, those of you into these kind of things between boots that are sturdy and boots that are light. Isn't that, isn't that right? And you're having to consider, you know, yeah, those are great boots, but I think they're a bit heavy because I, I need to get around. And gospel boots are supposed to not only give us stability, 
as we apply the gospel, like forgiving one another, but also mobility as we are ready to tell the good news of peace wherever, ready to move, to go with the gospel. Again, I think there's that sense in, okay, we're standing our ground, but we've got to be mobile, moving about the ground we have. Always prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have to anyone who asks us, why are we bothering to hold this ground, to stand firm? Why are we so concerned about the life of our church? Fourth piece of kit, the the shield of faith, verse 16. It's the word for that long, full-length shield, the the sort you sometimes see in the hands of riot police, you know, that goes right from the ground, right up to the the helmet. The Romans had a, a special word for one of those, and that's the word used here covering the whole body from top to toe. It's important, isn't it? Because when the enemy throws his petrol bombs at us, they can't get through. What are the, what are the devil's petrol bombs, or as they're called here, the flaming arrows? Um, well, it may take the, the shape of persecution, as in so many parts of the world. Christians in Syria and Iraq are facing that kind of thing, and in many other parts of the world. For us, it's not like that. It's more like... Temptation to ungodliness in all its forms, isn't it? To bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, gossip, slander, etc. Or the temptation to doubt and despair. You know, you, you call yourself a Christian and you do that? Faith claims God's promises, doesn't it? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every trace of impurity. Do you believe that? Do you have the faith to believe that God is willing to go on forgiving, to go on applying the benefits of the blood of Christ to the believer through the rest of his or her life? That will protect you from the accusations of the devil. Or maybe the suggestion from the propaganda wagon that, my goodness, the church is falling apart. I'd be better off somewhere else. I've been through two churches and they've been through me and I I think I'm going to give up on the church. Hang on a minute. What did Jesus promise? He said, I will build my church and the power of the enemy, the power of death, will not overcome it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the church is worth persevering with? Because this is indeed Christ's church and he has promised to build it and to let nothing destroy it. The shield of faith. Fifth piece of kit, the helmet of salvation, verse 17. We must remember that our lives are protected by salvation, accomplished on the cross and anticipated in glory. We are safe. Sixth piece of kit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, verse 17. We need to fend off the enemy. And how did Jesus do it when he was tempted by the devil in that famous temptation in the wilderness well i'm sure you know it well what did he use he took up the sword of the spirit the scriptures to defend himself against the devil's attacks we need a sword to defend ourselves to hold our ground also to strike out and to penetrate the darkness around us to liberate people from the grasp of the enemy because we don't want just to be a clique that stands our ground. We want to be welcoming others to join us 
in holding the ground that the Lord Jesus Christ has won for us. We're constantly looking for others to come and join us. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is able to penetrate the darkness and liberate people. But the word of God has no power when we keep our mouth shut. When we, it's only when we open them that it has great power to actually communicate this word. Now, the word of God has, I'm not saying it doesn't have power if people pick it up and read it, but in terms of us using it in the battle, just having it does no good. We've got to open our mouths and share it or get it into people's lives. That's why Paul is so keen on prayer. He prays as we read on that, that he would be given courage to open his mouth. And that's the final thing we need to look at as we think how we're going to hold our ground and withstand the assaults of the enemy. It's crucial in any field of war. In fact, it's crucial in life, isn't it? Communications. Now, we're in a culture and a generation which is absolutely overwhelmed with communication, isn't it? I mean, I... I guarantee that as soon as we finish this session, half of us will reach to our pocket and check our mobile phones. It's just almost an addiction, isn't it? You know, hands up if you're slightly addicted. Um, we're into communications, so don't say, communications doesn't interest me. No, you're, we're, we're saturated with communications. We're almost obsessed with communications. It's so important to be communicating. We all know that. I don't have to convince you of that. The question is, what do we receive? The, the, the challenge is, isn't it, in our day and age, is to filter communication. Uh, so you go away from holiday, you have a lovely break, and you come back to how many emails? Um, and you know, part of you thinks, oh, I don't think I want to go away on holiday again, if it's that many next time. Um, Talk to Philip about a brilliant way to deal with your after-holiday emails. He was telling me last night, so uh, I'm going to try it. Um, but it's a two-way thing, communication, isn't it? Who do you communicate with? How many people are you friends with on Facebook? Really? Um, do you actually communicate with them? We must, if we're going to stand our ground, call out again and again. That's the third main point. Cop on, there's a war on. Kit out. Get the Spirit's gear. Call out, thirdly, again and again, more briefly, verses 18 to 20. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. and Always keep on praying for all the saints. That's all God's people. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, says Paul, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the, the mystery, the revelation of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now look at verse 18. Notice the alls. It's on all occasions with all kinds of prayer. He wants to do it always, at all times. And to pray for all the saints. There's a comprehensiveness about this and a continuity, a constancy, isn't there? Now, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, it's back to that rule of thumb that I gave you earlier in the weekend. That if you want to know what a particular phrase or verse means, nine times out of ten, the verse before or the verse after will answer your question. 
So let's check the verse before. What's he just said? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So my suggestion to you is that the natural way to understand the phrase pray in the Spirit is to think back to the previous verse and say, what have I got in my hand from the Spirit? I've got the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? Explain that to me. Well, it is the Word of God. So I have the Word of God in my hand, and I'm to pray in the Spirit with his help and enabling, guided by him. How does he enable and guide me? Well, it's through his sword, the Word of God. So what I think Paul is saying is that we take the Spirit's words, which are found in the Word of God, and we use them, if you like, as the Spirit's sword in our praying. So we base our prayers on the scriptures, prayers and promises, and that will give spiritual power to our praying. That's why, if you've never read it, let me encourage you to get hold of Don Carson's book, where, um, what is it called, where he goes through all the... Sorry? Thank you very much, Ben, as a man with a memory. A call to spiritual reformation, in which he goes through Paul's prayers one by one and says, how about making these a model for our prayers? rather than just all the kind of airy-fairy stuff we tend to come up with when we're not, if we're not careful. We need to stay online with God. Never disconnect. Keep praying to him always, using Scripture for power, the power of the Spirit in our prayer. Then we will be awake, sober, alert, ready for the attacks of the enemy, the propaganda, the lies. And when the day of evil comes, verse 13, sorry, verse 18. Now, which verse is it? Lost it. It is verse 13. Yeah, sorry, when the day of evil comes, which I think is talking about special times of testing, then we will stand the test. We will not be moved from our confidence in the victory already won by Christ. As a church, we will not be torn apart by whatever is thrown at us, but will stay strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. So back to our original question. Why is church so hard along the way? Well, the answer is very very simple, because we're in a war. We need to cop on. And realize we are constantly in a war zone. And that's going to change our outlook on everything. We need to therefore, because we've been called up in this time of war, we need to kit out with the gospel gear. And critical to this life is communications. We need to keep calling out for the help and strength we need. Particularly for mouths that are open fearlessly like Paul, to make known the revelation of the gospel. And then, with God's enabling, we will stay united and be more and more the church God wants us to be, so that as God points to this working model of the future of the universe, people can see it actually does work. It's not perfect, but it works. Let's pray.
Our Father, we pray that you would take what is helpful and true to your word from what we have heard and that you would burn it deep into our hearts and minds. We ask that each of us would take something from your word this morning and take it with us into our lives, into our daily lives, into our church lives, into our working lives. And that we would be enabled to live differently and for your glory in this time of war. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, including our generation, forever and ever. Amen.